Welcome back to Stop Killing Deals. We have a special episode for you today as we're getting closer to Halloween. Stop Killing Deals is a show built around exploring four fundamental areas that affect sales performance. In this episode, we are focusing on the first one, you. Call it self-examination, self-reflection, or self-awareness. The topics within this context are fear, cognitive biases, and coaching. This episode will have clips from fear and cognitive biases from my interviews with Lee Gerdes, Dave Curlin, and Carrie Morwedge. So if you're interested in taming that monster within you, let's look at what these experts shared to help us along. I interviewed Lee Gerdes, who is an inventor of a technology that balances your brain. What struck me the most was when he said that we should embrace and celebrate fear. I thought that was a very good comment because we, uh, we look at fear and we think it's something bad and something we should prevent or that we might be weak if we're fearing, feeling fearful. Uh, but I do think that he has, uh, he's onto something there. We, we should embrace it because our mind is telling us that something is off. Uh, we need to become curious and understand why are we feeling fear right now? Is it reasonable? How should I act to this? When? Um, and understand if we're going into fight or flight mode. Because if you're procrastinating, uh, that might be your type of personality. That might be how you manage fear by preventing whatever makes you fearful. Whereas others might go into uh, complete super action mode <laughs> and start doing a bunch of things because that's how they react to fear. And one is not wrong, the other one is not right. It's just we're different uh, and the way we react to fear is different. Let's watch some of those clips now. How we respond to fear is really based on how well balanced our brains are. If our brain is highly likely is, is highly strong on the left side in the temporal lobe we're going to be in what's called a parasympathetic dominance or a freeze response and somehow or other at some time it may have been even when we were a fetus developing but at some time that brain found itself in a situation where it had to shut down and control the world in order to to save itself. The other side of the brain, and, and you could think of that as the brake uh -huh. on a car. The other side of the brain is, um, if that's dominant on the right, that side leads us to uh, be in sympathetic dominance or fight or flight. So blood pumps to our extremities. We want to fight or we want to run. The inherent condition of how balanced we are leads us to a way where we're, we're going to take the appropriate action. With the same fear, one person will freeze up and not be able to speak. Right. But the other person will try to run away or try to attack the fear, mm -hmm. one of the two. Yeah. Neither one of those things is helpful. So it's not the fear itself but the response to it that matters. Public speaking fear um, may result in a number of different things, right? And um, one of the things it may result in is me 
when I get up in front of an audience, freezing up. But one of the things that may result in is my re- getting up in front of an audience and being chatty Cathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't make much sense necessarily, but I, I keep talking because I'm because I'm because of the anxiety. It's anxiety driven. If I have something to do that I'm afraid of, and I'm likely to be have I'm likely to be parasympathetic dominant. I will I will also likely to be a procrastinator. If I have something to do and I'm likely that I'm that I'm that concerns me that builds anxiety. If I have something to do and I'm in fight or flight, I'm likely to attack it without appropriate thought because the response to fear doesn't come from that analysis. It comes from a brain pattern that works four to five times faster than our analysis or our action. We don't mitigate anger when, when we, unless we change our brain. We only control it. Mm-hmm. In other words, we still have it. We try to channel it in a different way. But I'm an engineer, and I say, well, that didn't get it for me. I don't want it. <laughs> Just get rid of the dang stuff, right? One of the things that can inform you of a imbalance is when you get into a high-stress situation right after it. Let's say that you were driving down the street. You had somebody very important with you, You're a child or you know, a dear friend, whatever, wife, mother, yeah. and somebody pulled right out in front of you and you had a slam on the brakes mm-hmm. and barely missed them, then you would naturally have kind of one or two reactions. You stupid idiot, fight or flight, or, oh my God, I was driving too fast. Freeze. If the incident doesn't bring up that much or a high degree of reaction response, then you're more reasonably balanced. If it does bring up a high degree of reaction where it's inappropriate uh, or where you play it back, for instance, when you go to bed, you can't get over the thinking about it and you don't get good sleep, that's an imbalance. Sleep generally is the key. If you can get, if you get good sleep, uh-huh. say, you know, seven to eight hours, preferably, when you're more prone to parasympathetic dominance, a freeze response, then you're more prone to procrastination. And let me give you an example of what might happen um, and how we might know if we're more parasympathetic dominant. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's say we go to a grocery store. Uh-huh. And we're getting our, our groceries and we come and the checkout person is extremely rude. Okay. <laughs> and and we, we get um, the sign said, you know, this was X, do- X dollars or whatever for this product. But the product was in a sack and the sacks weren't. What we actually wanted was just one or two avocados. But we thought, well, for that price, I'll get this little bag. Yeah. But. The little bag was five times that. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And we say, oh, no, I don't want that. Well, that's what the sign said, didn't it? They were, you know, a dollar a piece or whatever. So this is five of them. That's five dollars. Oh, I didn't know. Well, that takes a lot of sense or something like that. They'd say yeah. to us. 
they're very rude and the whole interchange happens that way. We wanna say something to them, but we don't. Right. And then when we get out in our car, we say, I wish I would have told her or him, uh -huh. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a freeze response. Uh, okay. This tension goes high, the freeze response shuts down. Mm -hmm. okay. And we had two inmates to work with who were uh, white, two Engl inmates who were Asian, two in inmates who were Native American, Hispanic, and uh, African American, right? We expected, I expected to see those inmates were all there for a long time, medium security. So they were being prepared, some of them to go to maximum security, and they were the bad boys of the 500 inmate population. Yeah. <clears throat> they didn't give us the good boys. No, <laughs> I get you. Um, and, and so um, when we did work with them, I expected to see all of those brains that were in a sympathetic dominance in your face kind of, right? Yeah, I get it, yeah, understood. They were all the opposite way. Oh, really? Interesting. Um, when we see a brain that's 20 or 30% or 40% imbalance, that's a lot for us. Okay. They were 256% imbalance on the average. Call it into the freeze mode, right? Uh -huh. and, and the thing of it is, the best way to come out of a freeze mode is anger. It's, it's rage. Why because that? when you rage, that means your mind goes into a fight or flight state and it, you, you feel good because you're balanced. Okay, so you suppress your, your emotions in a freeze mode, but sometime you just have to sort of let that out. But when you let it out, it's kind of like popping a balloon. I think we should celebrate it. I think we should be really glad of it because it tells us something extremely important. There's something here that I didn't recognize. What is it? Next up is Dave Curlin. And uh, we also talked about fear. And one thing that Dave said that I found was quite interesting was when I asked him, how come salespeople are so afraid of picking up the phone and calling strangers? He said, well, it's because of their mothers. <laughs> and uh, when probing him about that, he said, well, you know what? What is the first thing our mothers tell us when we leave the house as kids? Don't talk to strangers, right? Makes perfect sense. We get afraid uh, to talking to strangers. So when you want to pick up the phone and call uh, complete strangers, it can feel a bit scary. So that was a good point. And he said a bunch of other very fascinating things. Let's listen to some clips of Dave. 59% of all salespeople need to be liked. And a good chunk of them need to be loved. And they're trying to get that from their conversations with their prospects. But hang, hang on a second. So are you saying that 40% of the salespeople don't want to be liked? Don't need to be liked. There's a liked? difference between you and I who are both very likable and whether oh. or not we, for our own uh, psyche, need to be liked. Then the fear is present throughout the discovery stage of the sales process. And um, that voice in their head is active. So 
that's fear driven by something else altogether. It's yeah. fear driven by the need to be liked. Now, I mentioned emotions. Uh-huh. So if somebody says something to them, it actually happens. Their fear was it was worth the worrying about. And the prospect gets upset with them. Like, mm-hmm. how dare you ask me that question? That's none of your business. I don't share that with salespeople. If, mm-hmm. a, if a prospect reacts emotionally and the salesperson was already afraid and then the prospect says that thing they were afraid of hearing now they're emotional they go into oh my god mode Mm -hmm. it happened now what so now they can't control their emotions so now it's fear plus it happened so now they go into fight or flight mode yeah true panic oh my god um so there's a lot of stuff going on and what's really important at this moment is whether they react or whether they respond Mm -hmm. a reaction is emotional it's it's the first thing that feels right for them oh i'm so sorry (laughs) please don't hate me or they can respond, which is a measured approach. It means the voice in their head isn't dictating what they're uh-huh. going to do next. And a measured response might be, it looks like I got you upset. And, and let them say, yeah, you got me upset. Tell, tell me about that. Why do salespeople don't want to pick up the phone? Because of their mothers. <laughs> Because of their mothers? Yeah. Playing the mothers, okay. Their mothers, when when they were itsy-bitsy and leaving the house for the first time, what, what was the message their mother said to them? Be careful. And don't talk to strangers. To strangers. Oh, now I get what you mean. Yeah, don't talk to strangers. And sales managers were salespeople, so they have the same problem that salespeople have, right? They want to be liked. Mm-hmm. So they have a hard time holding their salespeople accountable and reprimanding them when they aren't doing the things they're supposed to do. And they have a hard time with coaching, with real coaching, not what they think is coaching, you know, just talking to a person and suggesting a couple of things, but real coaching with role play. So they're afraid of holding their salespeople accountable. They're afraid of doing a role play. They're afraid of really trying to coach and engage and, make their salespeople better because they don't really know how Mm. and they don't know how their salespeople are going to react. And they're afraid that if they push it, salespeople won't like them anymore and might quit. Procrastination, uh, perfectionism Mm -hmm. specifically causes them to procrastinate making that call because perfectionists won't do something till they're sure they can do it perfectly. And as you know, there is no perfect cold call. They're all bad, right? That they're (laughs) never going to be perfect. So there's certainly a percentage of salespeople who can do it, but won't do it until they know they can kill it. Uh And they never get to that point where they're confident that they can do it well. So they don't start. Fear is happening throughout their sales cycle. And we have to recognize it. We have to see that it's there and and do what we can to help salespeople overcome it. And that's one of the places where sales managers overall are failing. Mm -hmm. They're just blind to all of that. They're 
oblivious to it. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm a process guy, so I think one way of um, I, I never knew that. <laughs> one way of of actually sort of trying to to help people with this, I think, is just identifying where we think these roadblocks will occur, uh, and try to latch helpful guiding tips and coaching to those steps. Like it's, it's like with training, I can I always come up with a few excuses why I should not do my workout. And um, my personal trainer has now full insight on my excuses. <laughs> and he, he then uses them. So like, I know you on Tuesdays, you always do this, right? So right after that, you have to do this. Uh, and it's like, if you want to have a new habit, uh, the suggestion from a lot of sort of behavioral research is to latch it onto an already existing behavior. Like do it right after you brush your teeth. Your 10 work uh, push-ups or whatever every day. Start there. And we can do that in the sales process as well. That's right. In my book, Stop Killing Deals, I wrote about how humans are not rational, but rather driven by emotions. To explore this topic, I interviewed Carrie Morwidge, professor at marketing at Boston University. Carrie's research about bias in judgment and decision-making is so fascinating. One example that he shared was how people who tasted wine in a blind test often preferred the $5 wine to the $90 wine. But when they learned about the prices, they changed their mind. And all of a sudden, they all preferred the $90 wine. They even felt that there might be something wrong with them for not picking that wine as the better tasting wine in the first place. This highlights the confirmation bias which is just one of many biases that create irrational decisions. Understanding that we all have these biases is very important to make better decisions and to realize that we are not as rational as we might want. Let's listen to Carrie. It's, 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 it's a really interesting question about where do they come from and sort of like how much, what do we need to do about them, right? right. So there's sort of two views of cognitive bias that play out in our academic literature. One is that people are amazing. Look at all the things that we can do while we're distracted, right? We have these incredible heuristics that help us simplify all these really complex decision tasks and they're wrong just a little bit of time. And the other kind of perspective is that we have, you know, humans make all these tragic errors and we can see that even statisticians are susceptible to them. And so we, we need to understand sort of how the mind works through them. And so, that tension is is present in the literature where we're seeing you can generally think about heuristics as being you know useful rules that we have and they can sometimes result in some of these cognitive biases when we try to simplify the decisions that we make mm -hmm. so like let's let's take for example buying a car right lots of people right now don't want to take public transportation they're looking at used cars you go and you take a look at a car and what's some cue that you would use to determine if it's been taken care of you're looking at it in new, like a used car, right? Yeah. And you go to check it out. It seems mm -hmm. to drive fine. How do you know whether or not the owner is taking care of it? So most of us are using cues like, do they have the service records or does yeah. the interior look clean? Does the, is it washed, right? Those <laughs> yeah. as cues for the quality of maintenance, right? right? And so those are, you know, if the car looks like it's, you know, been in an accident, or you know, if they're the inside is in total disarray, that's probably a valid signal, right? But there's some noise in that in that judgment, right? And so Definitely. a shrewd seller could 
get their car detailed before they sell it, show it to you, right? And so that kind of the error there, there's some error there. We're using this shortcut to make that kind of decision. And so cars that are going to have been, that have been detailed are going to be seen as being more likely to have been maintained well than cars that weren't, right? And mm-hmm. so there, there's going to be some error in our judgment and that trends in a, in a statistically significant way. Or you could think about wine, right? So wine is an amazing area because wine is really ambiguous stimulus, right? And so yeah. what do we use to decide at a restaurant how good a wine is if you don't know that much about the region? The price. Right. <laughs> and so what's what's amazing is th- these behavioral economic studies with with um, at vineyards basically show that people, when they don't know the price of the wine, actually prefer cheaper wine. So okay. most people, pr- price is usually negatively correlated with the quality of or people's enjoyment of wine, right? Mm-hmm. Except for sommeliers who show like a positive relationship. But what happens is once you tell people what the prices are, then their perceptions of the wine correlate with quality. So if I don't know what the prices are, I like a $5 wine. The average person likes a $5 wine more than a $90 wine. Mm. But if you tell them what the prices are, then they like the $90 wine more because there's a confirmatory bias there, right? right? So we have this idea, there's a price placebo effect. We have this idea that $90 wine must be better. And if I can't taste that superiority, there's something wrong with me, not the wine. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of one organizational, well, there's two amazing organizational failures um, you know, in my country's history, it, um, one that is used in business cases all around the world now is a simulation of the decision to launch the space shuttle Challenger. Um, right. So um, um, people may not remember, but there was a tragic case where the shuttle exploded because of a damaged O-ring. Right. And so what was happening was there's a lot of pressure on NASA to launch the space shuttle. The engineers from Wharton Thiokol had sent information over to NASA Right. Um, and that information was ambiguous. It suggested that at low temperatures, there might be an O-ring failure. Right. But it was very hard for NASA to see in that data whether or not the temperature was a causal factor in terms of that failure, because what those engineers only sent over were examples where there was failure. They didn't show cases where there was success, too. And so people couldn't see that relationship. And NASA felt under such pressure to launch that because it was ambiguous, they decided to launch anyway. And we see that result after. You know, we might say, for example, I think this product will be successful. And uh-huh. you might ask your team to figure out, to research whether or not when you bring it to market, there'll be a success or failure, right? And yeah. so you are giving them, if you ask them, do you think this product will be successful? You're giving them some directionality in how you expect it to turn out. And then what they might do is search for information that supports that hypothesis. So the first part of that confirmation bias is looking for more information that supports the hypothesis or that might negate alternatives, right? Yeah. So they might look for information that it's mm-hmm. going to be successful and information suggesting that it won't be unsuccessful. And then the second piece of that is looking at how people evaluate the information that they've gathered, right? So if there's information that it will be successful, and information that it won't be successful, I might be likely to overweight or place more importance on the information that confirms my belief. There's there's sort of two pieces of what you said that ring true with what we found in the research literature. So the first is that people show this biased blind spot. So we tend to view ourselves as less susceptible to biased behavior than other people, 
right? Of course. So it's, you know, we use our introspection to think about whether or not we were biased, right? So let's say that we're hiring a, a job candidate and we look at 10 different candidates and we end up hiring someone who's very similar to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We might say that, well, familiarity or stereotypes might not have influenced my hiring. I didn't really feel like I was having any kind of biased thoughts while I was making my hiring decisions. So I wasn't using bias in any way and bias really didn't affect my decision. Yeah. Whereas other people, when they look at that kind of choice, don't use introspection to evaluate that kind of behavior. They don't have access to your thoughts. Right. And so instead they use your behavior and bias is sometimes more easily detected in behavior than it is in our self-examination. Um, what we found, for example, is we ran a study with 661 participants in an online sample. Mm-hmm. Of that sample, 85% of people said that they were less biased than the average person in that sample. Yeah. One person, Only one person said they were more biased than the average person in that sample. And about 12.5% said that they were as biased as other people. So right. out of 600 people, only one person is saying that other people are less biased than themselves, yeah. which is statistically impossible. Right? <laughs> yes. And so, yeah. you know, but the yeah. second piece is really interesting too, is that we found that people, um, people can actually learn quite a lot from watching other people uh-huh. making good and bad decisions. So we have seen in new studies that we just have coming out in organizational behavior and human decision processes. It's a yeah. really good management journal. Um, there, what we see is that people can learn from watching others make good and bad decisions and they don't necessarily have to watch great decision makers or terrible decision makers to learn so simply seeing someone making decisions and getting some feedback about those choices helps and what's really helpful too is seeing how other people use these kinds of decision strategies so learning about the decision strategy is great in the abstract but it's really helpful for people to have a human model someone showing them how to do that. Just as you might, you know, if you want to fix your computer or if you want to learn some new statistics or do a makeup tutorial or learn a new how to do new tricks skiing or skateboarding, you might yeah. go to YouTube and watch people demonstrate these kinds of skills. Mm-hmm. We see that seeing people use these kinds of decision strategies is really helpful in learning and learning how to implement those strategies in their own decision making. Yeah, this observational learning uh, tactic. So what we did in those experiments was we taught people an averaging rule. So what happens when people are making estimations, like you might say, how long do I think it will take for this product to launch, right? You might think in your mind, well, it's going to take six months. And someone Mm -hmm. else on your team might think, well, it's going to take 12 months. And so what we find is that on average, when you have a pool of judges who have different information, or different ideas, what happens is they're more likely to be accurate if they average their judgments, right? So if if, if you ask, if you say, this is gonna take six months, Carrie, how long do you think it's gonna take? I say, George is gonna take 12 months. And then you have to make a final judgment or a final call. You average our judgments and you say, well, it's gonna be nine months. On average, those kinds of, that kind of averaging tends to benefit people. But we can also think about noise as being an important contributor, right? Right. So if you have a narrower confidence interval than I do, right? Uh-huh. So if I have no idea how long that project's going to take, I'm going to be much, there's going to be much more noise in my judgment than if you have a good idea, right? And so businesses really need to think not only about 
reducing bias, but also reducing noise. So noise can be really costly variance, right? If, mm. By trying to learn more about, you know, sometimes we can't necessarily reduce bias, but there's other areas in which we can reduce noise by thinking about different kinds of intervals, by doing research, um, by using talking to experts. And so that can be as, in many cases, as efficacious as reducing people's cognitive biases. And we, but we could also see cases of bias and noise there too, right? So if we're trying to think about sales targets, for example, um, you know, people might overestimate the number of units that they might sell, but we could think about what that plausible range would be or a subjective mm -hmm. confidence interval. And so noise would be trying to become more accurate in thinking about how, how tight that range is versus how wide. Right. And now I want to know, was this helpful to you? Did you like the topics? Did you learn anything new? Did you think the topics were valuable in themselves? How about the interview format? Did you appreciate how we first went outside of the sales space and then talked to a sales expert? I really want to know how you liked this format and the, the topics. Uh, please reach out to me via LinkedIn or send me an email, drop me a note on Twitter, whatever you like best, and let me know what you think. Thank you. See you soon.